Last Sunday, I gave a pop quiz about the Immaculate Conception and Virgin Birth, and I was encouraged by a good number of you got the right answer. So, encouraged by that, I, let me give you the last pop quiz of the year. This time, without closing, oh, I'm sorry, so excited. After the Justin's prayer, I was uh, pumped up to come and preach. Children, enjoy your Sunday worship and fellowship and class. Yes, children, yes. Okay, for the sake of recording, let me, repeat, let me begin. From the, let me start all over so that it will be easier for editors, okay? Last Sunday, I gave a pop quiz about the Immaculate Conception and Virgin Birth, and I was encouraged by a good number of you got the right answer. So let me give you the last pop quiz of the year, this time without closing your eyes. And how many of you remember the first Sunday sermon of 2021? Those of you who are not here, weren't here, yeah, of course you're exempted. How many of you remember? I actually prepared the $20. All right, all right. I, I am going to save $20. We began 2021 with Apostle Peter's greeting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, where Peter told us, followers of Christ are elects of God and the exiles in the world. God's people have a paradoxical identity and experience of life, in that when we are chosen by God for His purposes, in turn His purposes lead us to be misunderstood and mistreated in the world. Today I want to close 2021 sermon with a confirmation of the same biblical truth illustrated in the life of a holy family. Last two Sundays we saw the faith of a human parents of our Lord Jesus, the silent Christmas experience of Joseph, and the scandalous Christmas experience of Mary. Today we will see the holy family after Christmas. Guess what the first experience of a holy family was? Often we imagine a serene, calm, peaceful picture of a holy family, largely due to Hallmark card kind of a paintings, nativity paintings. Nothing was a further away from the actual truth. The holy family of Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus were refugees and exiles. They were political exiles and fugitives. Today we will see holy family on the run. And uh, if you feel somehow that your life seems unsettled, wondering, uncertain, even worrisome, I pray and hope that you find a great comfort and challenge from this account of a holy family on the run as a refugees and exiles. With that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23, and once again, let's read it responsibly. When they had gone, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. 
When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child, his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child, his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he went, lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. Flowers fall, grass withers, and the words of God last forever. Today's story is heavy with the biblical prophecies. That means you cannot be lazy spectators, but serious learners. So I have to make you think sharp and hard for the last time, 2021. So your brain going to ache and your mind going to be stretched. Matthew tells us that there are deep connections between holy family on the one and the every human family struggling on the earth. Here the author repeated, repeatedly used the characteristic phrase of his gospel, so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. So to understand the nature of a biblical prophecy and its fulfillment, we must see that biblical writers were far more creative than just citing old promises. Biblical prophets they don't just cite the old, prophet, you know, old prophecies. They are creative. They are creative. They weave the prophecies together. So let me illustrate the creative, Christ-centered fulfillment of a biblical prophecy through a metaphor of a music. So I'm going to play a music. So listen to this uh, song. I, 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 I... All right. The song was Surfing USA by Beach Boys. It was a major hit in 1963 and made everybody happy and groovy except Chuck Berry. You know why? Four years earlier, Chuck Berry wrote a song called Sweet Little Sixteen. Listen to it. They're really rocking in Boston. In Pittsburgh, PA, deep in the heart of Texas, and round the Frisco Bay, all over St. Louis, and down in New Orleans, all the cats wanna dance with sweet little 16, 
sweet little 16. All right. So Chuck Berry sued Beach Boys for the first intellectual property infringement of a song. And the manager of Beach Boys, Murray Wilson, the domineering father of Brian Wilson, in fact gave the copyright to Chuck Berry, and Chuck Berry received a royalty for the song next to 25 years. Later, Brian Wilson kind of complained and confessed that rock and roll basically consists of three chords. They all sound similar. That's what he said. Now, Bible also has a basic running melody. And biblical prophecy is a very much like a music rather than exact point-to-point -point science or pinpoint prediction. As I said before, biblical prophecy has a different colors and shade. Some clearly point out Christ, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But some, like today's, rather creatively portray connection between Christ and suffering humility, humanity. So don't assume a simple correspondence as a relationship between prophecy and fulfillment. Rather, pay attention to creative, comprehensive, Christological theme and gospel melody in the Bible. Amen? So let me give you the three outline, outline of today's sermon. There are three geographical names mentioned here, Egypt, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. And they each place represents a challenge and struggle of a human life, as well as revealing the comfort and the saving hope in Christ. So first, Egypt. Egypt represents danger and migration. Look at the verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you for the herald is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child, his family, during the night and left for Egypt. Where he stayed until the death of Herod, so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Magi from east left, God warned Joseph again in his dream to migrate to the west, which is Egypt in order to escape from impending danger of Herod. It was interesting that God didn't tell the Holy Family to go with the Magi, but go to Egypt. And Matthew saw it as a fulfillment of old prophecy. And the prophecy that Matthew cited was Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, When Israel was my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here we have an obvious question about the Matthew citation. Because God called Jesus to Egypt in Matthew 2, but Hosea said God called his son out of Egypt. Right? Do you see the difference? Matthew's direction seems to be opposite of Hosea's. So, in order to understand this discrepancy, whatever, difference, we need to know the context, which is a concern of Hosea's you know, prophecy. Hosea 11 deals with the fear of Israelites at the time who are about to go into Babylonian exile. 
the prophet Hosea was trying to calm and comfort his fellow Israelites by reminding them about God's faithfulness during Exodus in the past. Just as God sent you know, Jacob and his family to Egypt and later called them out of Egypt, Hosea was telling Israelites, God will bring you guys back, calling Israelites back to the homeland out of Babylonian exile. That is the context. So main point of Hosea's prophecy was not the direction of a journey, but the God's protection and promise to guide them in their fearful, dangerous migration and exile. And here is an important biblical fact and the spiritual truth. That is, God does not send us to a place without his promise of protection and guidance. Do you know wherever God sends us, he will continue to shepherd us and save us? Amen? Today, before we are done with the 2021, I want all of us, the people of God, to recognize an important fact of life that is so relevant to our faith. That is, we are living in a world where there are so many migrants and the refugees seeking for home. According to United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, there are there were 82.4 million refugees in the world end of the last year. And this year, the actual number will rise well above 100 million. In Texas alone, there were 4,200 Venezuelan immigrants in last year. You know, Venezuela is my second home country, so I always pay attention to the 6 million Venezuelan migrants outside of the country. This year, the number grew up to above 50,000. Now, before we see it as a political problem, I want us to understand why these people are willing to leave their home and risk everything to come here. And for that, let me share you a poem written by a, a, a Somalian refuge, and title of a poem is A Home. No one leaves a home unless a home is a mouth of a shark. No one leaves a home unless a home chases you, fire on the feet, hot blood in your belly. No one puts their children in a boat unless water is safer than land. No one burns their palms on the trains beneath the carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspapers unless miles traveled means something more than journey. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching or prison because prison is safer than a city of a fire and one prison guard in the night is better than truckload of men who look like your father. We're talking about women being assaulted by a group of, you know, Man, I want to go home, but home is a mouth of a shark. Home is a barrel of gun. No one would leave home unless a home chased you to the shore. Today we see baby Jesus and his family chased by Herod to Egypt in the middle of the night. And I want us to recognize the migration and displacement of life is actually an opportunity to experience God's comfort. And also, those of us do not have to migrate. Actually, 
It's an opportunity for us to expand our compassion for others. I think it is spiritually healthy to mindset of a migrant because many major biblical characters in the Bible, they experienced a migrant life one time or another. For instance, Abraham was a migrant from Ur of Chaldea to Canaan. His son Isaac also struggled to settle down in Canaan as a second generation. Jacob went to Egypt with 70 of his family. David, two years ago, when we studied the life of David in the summer, we learned that one time he was a political exile in the land of a Philistine. And the Mosaic law had many provisions to protect aliens and migrants in Israel. So, being, having a mindset of a, a migrant is actually hard, but it's actually you know, good. It's good for us. And I, you know, by the same token, without being a migrant and marginalized, at least in heart or spirit, we often delude ourselves as the center of the world, and we demand our selfish desires as our sure right. In America, I want to say this. Great strength of America is a land of immigrants and migrants. American dream is a basically migrant's dream. I believe this tradition of immigration is a great strength of our country, economically, politically, and spiritually. You know, economically, we don't have a problem of a decline population like Japan, Europe, South Korea, and then even China these days. You know, politically, so our market, you know, our you know, so-called capital market is, uh, you, know, you know, stable. Politically, everybody wants to come to our country. America is an icon and leader of a free world where everybody wants to come. That's something we need to cherish and, you know, uh, protect. You know, China tried to be uh, a number one superpower beating us. But do you know anybody wants to immigrate to China? Not really. Rich Chinese, they all want to come to America. Spiritually, we are to learn to welcome strangers and needy through the migration. And for Christians, migration opens up great possibilities for world mission. You know, those uh, second generations, even first generation migrants, if they receive Christ here, their hearts on fire for God, if they ever return to their home, you know, homeland, they can be a hundred times, thousand times more effective than sending out a missionary who has to learn the language and then, you know, experience a culture and adopt a you know, situation. Don't you think? You know? Carlin County alone, there are 60-some different languages spoken in, this, in our county. I just want to say this. Confirmation, you know, that I want to share with you is this. Jesus, as a migrant, understands our danger and fear of a migration. And Jesus knows our desperate needs for a safe home. You know, locally speaking, we name our church Forest. Why? Forest means no fence. Have you seen forest, you know, you know surrounded by fence? Forest means no fence. That means a community you know, without barrier, you know, without border. We want to welcome everyone who is looking for a serious spiritual home, which is a biblically functioning community. We are not 
just another you know, organized religion. Or we want to create a convenient, comfortable church for religious consumers. That's not who we are. We are very intentional about living as a missional people of God with a biblical conviction for discipleship and evangelism. So, and also we take our house church you know, very seriously because this is where discipleship, community, evangelism, everything you know, takes place. And we take a Bible so seriously that we have a homegrown Bible study classes and we encourage everyone to take a class. Now, if you all say amen to that, let me hear it. Is that all? All right, those of you who say amen, I want to make you, today a lot of core regular members are missing here, so I feel like I'm preaching the choir. Please come to church before 1 o'clock and welcome the newcomers. You know, many times the newcomers are here and the members, they all come after the, you know, we start praising. Or sometimes I see while I'm, you know, standing up here. Do you, do you go to your work late? Even movie theater, I come on time, you know. James Bond, I was, you know, one of the first one in, in the theater. Everything else, we are on time. When it comes to church, why do you come late? It's a really, really disrespect. Not just me, to God. And my fear is, especially parents with the children, if you habitually come late to the church, you're telling your children church is not important. And later when your children go wrong way, don't blame me. It's you. It's on you. It's on you. You heard me. All right. I'm thinking hard. How to change? This is my number one project next year. I want to make sure every newcomers, they come late. They can come late. You're a newcomer, I'll give you a month to be late. But after that, everybody come on time. We all be here before one and welcome one another. Now, let's find out the second prophecy fulfillment. That's what happened to Bethlehem after the Holy Family left for Egypt. Look at the verse 16 and 18. When Herod realized that he's been outwitted by Magi, he was furious, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, his vicinity, who were two years older and younger, in accordance with the time he had learned from Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here many people wonder, why? God didn't protect these children as he did for his son or baby Jesus. Some even blame the death of the innocents on Jesus. I want us to know several facts. One, Matthew wasn't shy about this tragic massacre. While other Gospels are silent about this, you know, Matthew actually showed us the dark side of Christmas. Dark side of Christmas. According to Matthew, Christmas was not cozy, idyllic, and uh, romantic. Rather, it was conflicted, inflamed, and even repulsive. It shows Matthew's, you know, gospel or nativity, you know, Christmas, shows the darkness as much as its light. And second, the birth of a Messiah. And uh, any time when uh, God starts working, Always it collides with the hegemony of the world and they create a violent reaction. From the beginning, Jesus was not welcomed by those in power and mainstream. And third, church tradition takes this tragic event seriously 
and establish, guess what? Feast of Holy Innocent. Feast of Holy Innocent in memory of this slain infant. So many, you know, uh, traditional churches, they celebrate the Feast of Holy Infant, you know, Sunday after Christmas. The early church called the slain children first martyrs, first martyrs, and called the Christians to remember them. And then they do have uh, many, you know, throughout the Christian history, we have uh, many paintings about, you know, this uh, Feast of Holy Massacre. And do you see this is 18th century French, you know, painting? And if you close up, you will see the desperation and fear and panic in the face of a mother. Why does church calendar include the massacre of this infant? And they invoke us to remember these innocent victims with the fasting and mourning. Let me quote an opinion at, uh, on 2019 New York Times written by Witten College uh, Assistant Professor of Biblical Study, Iso Macaulay. He said this, Church calendar calls Christians and others to remember that we live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of innocents on the altar of a power. We are forced to recall that this is a world with the families on the run, where the weeping of mothers is often not enough to win mercy for their children. More than anything, the story of innocence calls upon us to consider the moral cost of a perpetual battle for power, in which poor tend to pay the highest casualty rate. But how can such a bloody, sad tale do anything other than add to our despair? Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death because that's the only way story makes any sense. Where else can one speak about Christmas other than in the world in which sex, uh, racism, sexism, classism, materialism, and devaluation of a human life are commonplace? People are hurting, and the epicenter of that hurt, according to Feast of a Holy in Innocent, remains the focus of God's concern. So these innocent children, these uh, first, you know, martyrs, their death and sorrow, God takes seriously. It's a deeply affecting God. And the Christians, we believe that none of their suffering was in vain. The cries of oppressed do not go forever unheard or unanswered. We believe these children slaughtered by Herod, was ushered into the presence of God and will be with him for eternity. Christian tradition also affirms that Jesus' suffering served the purpose that when the state later ordered his death, God was at work. You know, Jesus is a truly the innocent one, and he was slaughtered by the evil government and the evil religious leaders. And God was emptying the death of his power and vanquishing evil and opening paths toward the forgiveness and reconciliation through slaughter of his own son. Now, that's why Matthew quoted Jeremiah 31, 15. 
You know, today's a quote came from uh, Jeremiah 31, 15, which said, this is what the Lord said, a voice is heard in the Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, context of Jeremiah 31 was the beginning of a Babylonian exile again and the banishment of the children of Israel. Ramah was a place where Babylonians gathered the first group of Jewish young people like uh, uh, Daniel and then deported them to Babylon as a hostages and POWs. So it was like uh, you know, Polish, some Polish and German train station during World War II where Jewish people were assembled and then, you know, transported to concentration camp. So that was Ramah. Now, who was uh, uh, Rachel? Who is Rachel? Rachel was uh, Jacob's first love, lo lover. And but second wife, you know the story, right? And younger sister of Leah. And she was a mother of uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And she died during the birth of uh, Benjamin. In the Gospel of uh, Matthew, uh, Rachel symbolizes somebody who's sacrificing her life for the sake of a child. You know, she gave her birth to a son, her best, and then she died. In contrast, Herod the Great is the opposite symbolism of Rachel. He's the one who sacrificed children for his own, you know, whims. But the real point of Jeremiah 31 was not just the pain and sorrow of mothers who are about to lose their children, but actually, rest of Jeremiah 31 is about the hope of God's promise. That's why Matthew did not say more. But when he called to Jeremiah 31, 15, he was kind of comforting them. Because if you look a little bit later, verse 23, this is what God said. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, when I bring them back from captivity, Babylonian captivity, people in the land of Judah and its towns will once again use this word. Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. So God promised Israelite, the, the mothers, I'm going to bring them back. Or maybe their children, your grandchildren. So they are not forgotten. They are not forever lost. I'll find them and bring them back. And not only God will restore them, later in Jeremiah 31, we hear the great promise, probably the best, the greatest promise in the Old Testament, that God will raise their relation, his relationship with Israel to a new level, which is Jeremiah 31, 31 said, the days are coming, I'll make a new covenant with the people. And then 32 said, I'll, make a, I will write the law in their mind, I'll write it in their heart. Now, you know, some scholars, some New Testament scholars think the number of slain children in Bethlehem was a very small because the Bethlehem was a tiny, tiny, you know, town, village. I don't know which one is smaller. You know, little town of Bethlehem, the song that we sing is literally true. It's a small. And since Jesus lived uh, uh, possibly two years, Jesus actually might have played some of the slain children. And then Mary and Joseph certainly knew some of the parents. You know, while that's a very plausible, I know for sure, God knows each one of these children, and God profoundly 
treasures them in his heart with his, their pain and sorrow. So confirmation number two today. Jesus, like a, mus, a murdered innocent, suffered the unjust violent, human, inhumane you know, execution, knows our sorrow and pain of a death. Our Emmanuel, is, Emmanuel God is the only one who can comfort us because he himself went through it. And he confronted with the death through his resurrection. Amen? Now let's see the final stage of a holy family's migration. That's a Nazareth. Verse 19. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, that, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilles was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, that he would be called Nazarene. Herod the Great was so obsessed with his throne that whoever he suspected, he killed, including his favorite wife, Miriam, his brother-in-law and the mother-in-law, and three sons of his own. And the final, in the spring of a four uh, BC, before Christ, four, year four before Christ, Herod the Great died, and the kingdom was uh, divided among three sons. So Achilles was to rule over Judea, and uh, Herod Antipas received the Galilee, and Philip received the northern frontier and the some of the eastern region called the Decapolis. By the way, Philip lasted the longest, and he was the one who built uh, Caesarea Philippi. Do you guys remember Caesarea Philippi in the Cornerstone Bible study, you know, Matthew 16? And uh, it's a sort of side point, but, uh, you know, he built a town named Caesar. So, and the name this Caesarea Philippi means, this is a Philip's homage to my Lord Caesar. I think uh, he knows how to appease his boss. You know, this is how you last long in your company. Okay? That's the Philip. Uh, Herod Antipas, that's the one that Jesus dealt with in his public ministry. Actually met him during, his good, you know, during the Good Friday. Now, the last one was Achilles. He, was, he lasted only uh, 10 years. Rome didn't like him and removed him replaced him with the governor, whom they called the procurators. And the one of the famous procurator is Pontius Pilate, which we see later. Out of three, Achilles was the worst, known as the worst, according to historian. That's why Joseph was afraid to go to Bethlehem. So we don't know how long the Holy Family lived in Egypt, but they returned to Israel and made a home in Joseph and Mary's hometown, Nazareth. Now, Notice, Matthew was quoting here, not just any particular prophet, but he said what? This is what prophets, plural, said. So, unlike the previous two prophecies, this one was a more of a generic, prophetic understanding or notion of a Messiah, which, is, which tells about Messiah's humility, 
and obscurity and the marginality. So one thing important is to hear is that don't confuse the name Nazarene here, Jesus being a Nazarene, with a Nazarite. Some of you heard the term Nazarite or Nazarene, which comes out in the numbers, you know, six. Samson the Nazarite, who shouldn't drink, you know, any wine or shave, you know, or cut her hair or anything, you know. That Nazarite and this Nazarene is a two different things. Don't get confused. It's like people confuse the Aryan in Hitler time and Aryan, the Christian heretic in the, you know, fourth century. Same name, totally different. This Nazarene, you know, whereas the Nazarite in the number six means consecrated or separated, but this Nazarene is actually connected to Hebrew word Nazar, which comes from Isaiah 11.1. 1. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of a Jesse, from his root a branch will bear fruit. That the Hebrew word for branch is a Nazar, from which we got the word Nazarene. This is a more like a, what is that, onomatopoeia? You know, similar name. So, Nazarene. So, Matthew, immediately when he heard that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he made a connection. And he quoting the Isaiah, you know, he's remembering the Isaiah and the other prophecy about, the, you know, that the branch of David, out of which the Messiah come. And this branch is not really... Uh, you know, it's elegant or very, you know, impressive. It's a small branch, but this branch will bear the fruit that God desires. So he was saying that the Messiah will have a very humble, obscure beginning. And this is why he grew up in Nazareth and is called a Nazarene. And uh, Jesus definitely grew up as an obscure, disrespected Galilean Jew. Once again, those of you, if you take uh, our Bible study called the Livingstone Bible study we're going to offer in this January, you will learn more about what it means to be a Galilean Jew. Jesus was not just ordinary people. He was a Galilean Jew. Now, being a Galilean Jew, especially a, a, a Nazarene from Nazareth, means people think nothing about you. You are nobody. You are ultimate nobody. For instance, when, uh, according to you know, John chapter 1, one of the Jesus' early disciples, you know, Philip, invited his friend Nathaniel to follow Jesus. Potential, you know, Messiah I found. What did he say? Can anything good come out of a Nazareth? And Nathaniel himself, from Galilee, he's also a Galilean Jew. Nazareth, Nazarenes, they are despised by their fellow Galileans. So they are despised of despised. And then later in John chapter 7, 52, when Nicodemus was a little bit sympathetic toward the Jesus, Pharisees, other Pharisees rebuked him. And then, are you also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet rises from Galilee. So Nazarene means, is a pejorative term to describe obscure, disrespected, and marginalized people. And here is a very interesting part. According to Mark chapter 16, verse 6, when angels appeared in the empty tomb of Christ, you know what angels said? Angels said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, whom you crucified, he has risen. 
angels knew how much they despised and disrespected and then, you know, marginalized Jesus. The Jesus, the Nazarene, the nobody that you tortured and killed, he is a risen Lord and he is a king of kings. That's what the angel was saying. This lowly Nazarene conquered the grave. You know, this tells us that uh, always the God's ways are different from the world's way. world always look at outside of qualification and so forth. God sees a heart. You know, even though you might feel nobody, to God you are not nobody. If your heart is right, God can use it more and greater than any somebody in this world. You know, all these passages that we look at this morning tells us something. That is, every detail of a life of a Christ was a fulfillment of a prophetic, you know, revelation and promises. You know, prophecy is only possible when God is in control. Prophecy is not a prophecy unless God is in control. And God is involved in his story and the leading his story and the weaving his story. And the you know, amazing thing is that even the Exodus, God led Exodus with a Christ in mind. Even in Babylonian captivity, God was, you know, God has a Christ in mind. Everything God did in the history of Israel, the, the focal point was Christ. And ultimately, Christ revealed God to us. And then God will not let anything interrupt his promise in Christ. You know, later in public ministry, you know, Jesus said this famous statement, the first shall be the last and last shall be the first. You remember that, right? Yeah, that's one of my favorite, you know, statements, you know, because I'm the last of my family. So last shall be the first, first shall be the last. Ah, yeah, I, I, I welcome that. And I love that statement. Yes, yes, you know, you know, you know, all the oppressed, we rise and then, you know, we, we, we kick the oppressors, but now, I think this, you know, statement, which generically, generally means arrogant and powerful will be humbled by God and that, you know, lowly and humbled will be honored by God. That's true. That's the general meaning. But I really think at the end, Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of his own statement in the most positive way. Because who is the first of all and everyone? It's Jesus, eternal son of God, creator. He is the first. But he humbled himself. He became the last, lower than lower, lower than any lowest ever. He died like a, you know, like a criminal and even like a, you know, animal on the cross. Why? So that anybody can be a child of God. Jesus became a most humiliated Nazarene to make a nobodies like you and me into somebody's. So I love this term, Jesus the Nazarene. More than any noble God in this world, and his humility grabs my heart more than any power, any pleasure in this world. Jesus became a Nazarene to touch your heart and my heart and transform our life for good. Amen? That's the God we are following.
holy family on the run. That run is not just survival. It's for our salvation. God is on the run for you and me. God is a humble. Restore all the danger. Restore all the humiliation. Why? For you and me. That is our God. And before this year is over, I want you to open your heart and receive that God and give your heart to that God. Amen. Let's pray.